I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Sports betting is sweeping across the country faster than the coronavirus, and Wagering Week is your antidote. I'm Tom Martin, and I'm a veteran sports analyst and respected sports handicapper who helped build ESPN's brand. I've been recognized and awarded by Pro Football Weekly and Gaming Today magazine as the honest handicapper. Let the other guys give you the same old boring sports talk with the same tired storylines. We'll give it to you straight here every Friday on Wagering Week. Don't gamble with other podcasts. Let Sports Garden Network. Network's Wagering Week help your bottom line. Welcome to Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And we are going to get into the highly contentious issue of whether America should be expelled from the electoral college. I get it. Expelled from college. I I get it. It took me four or five hours to come up with that. That's Uh, clever. But it is an interesting debate to have. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, the Democrats hate it and the Republicans love it and all that. We, we know that. But it's, I think it's going to be helpful to actually put some thought into it and figure out if it is so archaic that it really ought to be swept aside or if there really is a, an historical and legal and philosophical reason uh, to have it. It really boils down to the role of the states mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to just, you know, count them up. Uh, we're also, Connor, I'm very excited about this uh, uh, this, this, we're going to talk about the small penis rule. Now, before it, <laughs> before you get too outraged, um, it's a defamation law concept. It, it's a real law idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something that Royal Oaks made up. And it involves Michael Crichton, the famous novelist. Who wrote Jurassic Park mm-hmm. and Andromeda Strain and a bunch of other novels. So we're going to talk about the small penis rule after we resolve whether or not to get rid of the Electoral College. But before that, I, I did want to just get into kind of a, a big current news issue, and that's uh, Justice Sotomayor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had kind of a, a cage fight with Donald Trump recently uh, because Donald Trump announced that she should be uh, banned from deciding cases involving his administration. He wants her to recuse herself because he thinks that she's biased. Now, the background to this fight, of course, actually popped up during the campaign of 2016 when uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg came out and called Trump a faker and basically said, boy, this would be a really bad idea right. for him to be elected. And when she did it, I think a lot of people said to themselves, uh, Justice, uh, why are you saying this? It's fine to have personal opinions. And you know, all the Trump haters said to themselves, you, you go, girl. We absolutely agree with you. Yeah. But the idea of expressing yourself, and I've forgotten if it was like a full-blown apology she gave after that, but she kind of walked it back. She said something like, you know, I really shouldn't be blabbing like that. Yeah. But 
I mean, that that was kind of strange to have a sitting sitting justice of the Supreme Court make that kind of a political comment. It it was certainly strange, and it was something that that Ginsburg definitely regretted and has talked about how she regretted uh, sort of entering that arena. But it's also just acknowledgement. I think looking at it is is, it's it's reality. Humans have opinions, and Supreme Court justices are not free from those opinions. They're not robots. They 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 have political ideology. They get angry. They get you know frustrated, and they're going to they're going to sometimes say things that are uh, are unwise no matter how controlled uh, the the institution leads them to pretend to be i think it's just a, a good opportunity to acknowledge that these folks are human well trump has really gotten himself into a fight with the judiciary throughout his administration you'll, yeah. you'll recall connor a couple of years ago uh, i think it was a case involving trump university actually as to whether it was a big fraud or not yes and there was a judge uh, of hispanic who, descent hispanic descent federal court judge judge in San Diego, California, mm-hmm. and Trump said something along the lines of, well, I don't think a you know, Mexican judge should be deciding this. And people Because pointed, I'm you know, be- building a wall with Mexico. And everybody said that's people the People pointed most- out, first of all, he was born in Indiana. Yeah. He is not from Mexico. He is American. Right. And then beyond that- the That's issue- just the most racist thing I've ever heard in my entire life. The issue of the president making a statement like that yeah. and making building a case that, that he would be biased. So that- triggered, of course, a a tiff between the Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, and the President when the President referred to what he called an Obama judge. Right. And Roberts couldn't hold back, much like, I guess, Ginsburg couldn't hold back. And he said, without saying Mr. President, but he was directing it to the President, he said, there are no Obama judges, there are no Bush judges, there are hard-working federal judges. And, of course, Roberts kind of made famous the notion of the judge as an umpire. Yeah. Uh, if you're a baseball umpire and the guy is racing toward home on a close play and the the batter, uh, the, the catcher is of one race and the runner is of a different race, you don't want the judge making a call being influenced by the race of the, the ball players. You want him to be a completely neutral umpire. That's the goal. Yeah. So then you go to the question of, well, do we really believe uh, Donald Trump or do we believe the chief on the issue of whether there are Obama judges? And some people point to statistics suggesting that in highly politicized, contentious, high-profile cases, in a pretty high percentage of those cases, the judges end up voting per the party uh, that appointed them, yes. favoring the side right. that w- would be favored. Given that reality, should we be concerned that judges are politicized, that they here they're appointed by the most political animals on earth, namely presidents of the United States? Right. Should we expect anything other than these folks to have uh, a a sort of a favoritism toward one side or the other. Now, that's a huge question. And, and how, much, um, how much the judiciary is uh, political in their decisions um, is one of the most important, uh, longest-running American political and legal debates 
that that has ever existed. I mean, every everywhere back to I mean, that is constitutional law that lawyers take in law school, the highest level of constitutional law study you can do outside of maybe getting a PhD of some kind that analyzes politics. And we knew in the 30s, we know from the 30s when FDR tried to pack the court by yeah. expanding it from 9 to 15 because he was really ticked off at the nine uh, men on the Supreme Court striking down chunks of his new deal. Yeah, I mean, this has always been a debate and it always will be a debate debate so long as there is a Supreme Court and there are Supreme Court justices. And it would be silly to not acknowledge that individual justices throughout American history have had very strong political opinions and just opinions about how government uh, should operate or what freedom means or whatever other concept we think is political. And it is silly to say that there weren't ideological swings on the court as justices were added and removed. And there weren't periods of the court like the Warren Court that famously was very political and got involved in how the exact how much executive power there was it, it's silly to ignore all this but that doesn't mean that trump is correct that a bunch of judge justices out there hate him personally or want to take him down or on a witch hunt against him and it doesn't mean that changing the the supreme court's uh recusal rules as trump has called for is a good idea so specifically what happened is sonia sotomayor wrote a sharp dissent uh in which she said uh, the the other justices on this bench, uh, the ones who wrote the majority and joined the majority, they are just doing whatever the executive, that is the, the DOJ, the Trump administration, wants them to do. And she didn't say Trump. She just said that they're, they're, the, these colleagues are bending to the will of, uh, of the, the DOJ. And she was saying that each successive request by the Trump administration for a stay of various rulings, right. they, each of them lacked merit. Yeah, so the, the, the administration was constantly asking for emergency petitions, and the emergency petitions dodge this normal appeals process where you go up through ju- the judiciary. And she's saying, you're jumping straight to the, the Supreme Court to get an emergency emergency appeal where you know you'll win because the Republicans control the Supreme Court. Now, she didn't say that in so many words, but that's that's the implication. And Trump's response to this was to do what no political scholar or no legal scholar or, or political commentator outside of the fringe on either side thinks is a good idea, which is change the recusal rules and have people like Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Ginsburg uh, step back from uh, deciding cases just because they involve the government. Guess what? A ton of cases involve the government. Yeah, so so it's hard for Trump to defend the idea that the, uh, you should have a recu- recusal by Justice Sotomayor. On the other hand, it is an interesting issue uh, in terms of uh, uh, the whether or not the judiciary does bend one way or the other depending on the, the political attitudes of uh, of the justices. It is a certainly interesting question. It's a massively interesting question. I, I, a guy who I'm not a fan of, Jonathan Turley, uh, who's a, a law... Uh, legal, uh, law professor, um, and he's a massive Trump fan, and he basically he just testified on behalf of Trump in, in response to this. Didn't, didn't vote for Trump, though. Oh, sure. He mm-hmm. said that during his testimony. Well, sure. I mean, no, you know, uh, no self-respecting uh, legal scholar probably would admit that they no, voted no. for Trump. Uh, but he he came out and said the demand uh, 
that, that Trump's the blanket disqualification uh, request is, quote, ridiculous and unhelpful. Now, I mean, this is a legal scholar who's very conservative and who's very tied into the political Republican political establishment saying that, you know, Trump is being ridiculous and unhelpful. Is that ever stopped Trump in the past? No. But but it definitely it highlights how this is not like nobody really says this is a good idea. But Trump just says stuff. He just comes out and has ideas and he doesn't think about what the Speaking law of people means. saying uh, nobody says this is a good idea, we are going to move to our primary topic of the Electoral yeah, College because it. a lot of folks portray it as that. They, they say that it's mm-hmm, an institution mm-hmm. that nobody really seriously can defend. Well, we're going to sort that out we're and figure try. out we're going to try. if there is yeah. a basis for it uh, when too many lawyers returns. We hope you're enjoying this podcast, by the way. Please don't forget to review, mm-hmm. rate, and subscribe. Yeah, to- wherever, wherever you found this, go on to Spotify or on to Revolver's site or Apple. wherever you saw it, Apple Podcasts. Click review and get, leave us a nice review because you love us. Or click, you know, five stars or, or click subscribe and you'll get push notifications. You get told when the new episodes come out on Wednesdays. It'll be great. We'll be right back on Too Many Lawyers. Hey, America, Christopher Hahn here of the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. What is with the president and the right-wing echo chamber encouraging these astroturf protests against stay-at-home orders around the country? It's ridiculous, and it needs to stop. Check out the Aggressive Progressive Podcast wherever you download podcasts. We are back with Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. We're talking Electoral College. Should America be expelled from the Electoral College? <laughs> so the there's something called a National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, Connor. This compact could kill the Electoral That's College. That's the idea, yeah. compact yeah. being an agreement, a promise. Yeah, so uh, Democrats in Virginia, uh, were most recently now, want that state to commit that its 13 delegates to the Electoral College will vote for whoever gets the most votes nationwide. Right. So it's throwing in with the popular vote so winner. we got to break down, though, at the base level, what the Electoral College is and really how it works. And what the way it works is it's an intermediary between individual voters and the office of the presidency. So winner-take-all. So, yeah, we don't vote. That's the, 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 the one of the two big chunks of it is that it's winner-take-all. The other is that it's not population distributed exactly. So individuals vote for— Right, because it's the number of— Congress representatives plus the two senators. So Wyoming, being a tiny slice of the population, has two senators and one person in Congress. So they get three electoral votes. Exactly. And those votes come from somewhere else. Those votes come from, for example, New Jersey, which is a very populous state and should have four electors or six electors. Instead, it has four or whatever because it loses two of those that go to someplace like Wyoming. And in those ways, the the low populated states get extra power and the highly populated states get less power. So that the the way this works mechanically is you're you you know check on the ballot, I want Donald Trump to be president, and then some nameless, faceless elector at a uh, at a party convention decides uh, whether or not they want to abide by your vote. He doesn't vote. have a name or a face. How did he get selected it's as very, an elector? Very mysterious. Uh, political favors is the answer. And he or she decides, I'm going to you know, uh, go for Trump or Mitt Romney or whoever else. And that intermediary is has drawn a lot of uh, a lot of criticism. Now, way, 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 way back in the 17, 1800s, 
the the original justifications for the electors, there were a couple of them. One, some people will say that the founding fathers just thought that the nameless, faceless mass uh, would make bad decisions. And this was a sort of fallback plan, a last-ditch defense. Well, if they make a horrible decision, we can have some political elites uh, fix that decision. The other had to do with the speed of information. A lot of people told, you know, were, were talking at the time about how it takes, you know, the fastest way to get information was a guy on a horse, right? So if you had an uh, 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 electors um, that got selected by the states, and those electors then months later made a decision, it was safer and smarter for those electors who were in Washington, D.C. and had the newest information, the hottest news right off the press, and they could see whether Trump had just shot somebody on Fifth Avenue and, oh, okay, he really shouldn't be president because he's done something terrible in the last week or month or whatever that voters don't know about yet. Well, but the other justification was to respect states, to make oh, sure that, that all the states were represented. That is about the count, the number of electors you right. get. But the idea of having electors at all was in part based on this idea of the hot, fresh information that they'll have and how fast information could travel. And of course, now information travels literal the speed of light. So that part is no longer important. But you're right. We should get to the distribution of votes and the number of electors each state has. And this is really the heart of it. The electoral college is, in that sense, undemocratic because one vote in Wyoming is not equal to one vote in California. In fact, one vote in Montana is equal to, uh, sorry, four votes in Montana are equal to uh, one vote in California. That is of the, the Montanans voter, a Montanan voter has four times the power of a Californian. And this uh, achieves several things in some people's minds. Some people will tell you this prevents big uh, populist states from bullying small states. And it was part of the original compromise for why these states joined the union is they said, look, we're going to have more power pro- than we should get based on our proportional population size. Right. And it's really important that we not get bullied and pushed around. On the other hand, a lot of smart people will look at the state of the world and state of political uh, you know, uh, elections and tell you, that goal, actually, it hasn't happened. It doesn't – how do you measure, right, how, how much political candidates, presidential candidates care about people uh, in small states? Well, one good way to measure it is how often those candidates go visit those small states and campaign in those small states and you know flex their political will once they get in office to help those states. A lot of lovely campaigns uh, or vacation spots in uh, Montana and Wyoming. But there aren't a lot of presidential visits. In fact, before presidential well, elections— But is it significant how many times people visit there as opposed to whether or not they pay attention to what the citizens are saying and you know pay homage to, to the needs and the interests uh, of the locals You're in right. the smaller states? It's not a perfect proxy to look at, at presidential visits. But when you think about it, and everybody kind of knows this already, it's not like Wyomingites actually get tons of federal subsidies as a result of uh, their power in the presidential elections because they don't actually have power in the presidential elections despite having more votes. It's silly. It's ridiculous that they have more votes than a Californian or a New Yorker or a New Jerseyite, but they actually are, are, are weakened. Uh, in comparison to the people who actually have power in the presidential well, election, which is this. battleground states. Should we uh, get rid of the U.S. Senate? So the U.S. Senate, Senate you, you asked that very good question because the U.S. Senate is not proportionally Two based on population. Two folks per Senate right. per, per state. Yes, so Montana I personally agree. has one one-hundredth yeah. 
of the num- of the population of California or yes. whatever the percentage is, whereas they have the exact same number of senators. And the Senate is pretty important because without a vote by the Senate, mm-hmm. nothing gets passed. Right. No law in America goes into effect. Yeah, Grim Reaper, the House, Mitch McConnell kills the House bills. Yeah. and the Senate for both vote for yeah. something identically, yeah. and then the president uh, signs it or vetoes it. To answer your question. Uh, I personally think the, that the U.S. Senate should be changed or abolished, yes, because it is so uh, destructive and obstructive of the government's ability to actually function for reasons similar now, you, to You're familiar college. with the fact that the uh, Senate is provided for in the United States Constitution. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the U.S. So Constitution can be amended. It's not re- yeah, it's not realistic to uh, to see Well, yeah, but you asked whether it should, not whether it will. And you're right. It, right. it won't. Absolutely. <laughs> it won't get abolished. But the Electoral College, on the other hand, could be defeated by this exact uh, concept that you brought up, the the uh, interstate electoral yeah. compact. So let's talk about this compact. Yeah. Uh, it, it is called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact because it would be an agreement by a bunch of states mm-hmm. that say, look, doesn't matter you know, who wins the popular vote in our state. All that matters is the national. So we are committing that our delegates, Virginia's 13 delegates, for example, they're deciding this now, will vote for the candidate who gets the most votes nationwide. Now, that would defy the concept of the Electoral College, right. which is provided for in the Constitution. Yes. But the plan is that as soon as states Enough. with a majority of electoral votes, mm-hmm. which is 270. Now, if Virginia says yes, we're up to 209. That leaves 61 votes, which is not impossible. You know, if the Democrats swept the House uh, votes, say in 2020, that mm-hmm. could put 270 within reach. But you can bet that lawsuits are going to be challenging that. Yes. Uh, and really, it's going to come down to the philosophy of, of whether people are willing to put up with the idea of essentially abolishing what the United States Senate represents. Somebody came up with a very interesting hypothetical, Connor. I'm, I'm interested in your uh, reaction to this. Uh, f- we have a, a, a presidential election. Yeah. As it happens, just by coincidence, uh, 48 states go for the Republicans. Remember mm-hmm. when uh, Nixon uh, and Reagan were running, I, they had basically 49 to 1 uh, yeah. majorities. Now, I don't remember that, but but I didn't exist. But yes, I heard about it. People don't expect that to happen <laughs> again, but you know, it, it could happen. So let's assume in this hypothetical, 48 states vote for the Republican, and the average victory is 54% to 46% mm-hmm. in those 48 states. Assume further that New York and California are the two states that vote for the Democrat. And yeah. boy, do they vote for the Democrat. 75 to 25% in both New York and California. If we had an actuary here, he would crunch the numbers and he would tell you, Connor, this is interesting. 48 states went for the Republican candidate and uh, 54 to 46 on average in those states. 75 to 25 in New York and California. Guess what? The Democrat won by 50.1 to 49.9. Connor, would you be comfortable with 48 states voting for the Republican, but the president being a uh, elected uh, Democrat elected just by New York and California? I am comfortable with democracy. I am comfortable with the idea that population, uh, that, that the number of votes matters. I'm not comfortable with our current system. Our current system, it, like remember, every every version of, of, of hypothetical future that we're talking about has to be compared to what we're doing now to right. see whether it's better or worse. Right now, you can win the presidency with 22% of the popular vote. 
22%. If you won all the states that have disproportionately higher numbers of electors because they have small populations, but the bonus too, if you want every single one of those states by 50.1% of their populations, and because it's winner take all, you win all of Florida. When you win 50.1% of Florida, you win the entire Florida, uh, state of Florida. You could win the presidency with 22% of the popular vote. Now, which, it's, it's it, which is worse to say you can become president with 22% of the popular vote, which is insane, which is the current system, or right. your hypothetical where you can win the presidency with 50.1% of the of the votes of the people. Like more people wanted you to be president, but they happen right. to live in a place called both California and New York because they're in states. That's the crazy thing about the system. The system says where you live in the country, where you live in America, whether it's Montana or Delaware— means your vote matters more or less, which is itself just nuts. Yeah. Why would no, you're that right. matter? You can come up with some wild and crazy examples, as you did and as I did, yeah. both of which are probably pretty unrealistic. Totally. What it comes down to <laughs> is whether Americans are prepared to turn their back on a system of, of respecting the smaller states that we've lived with for centuries. And when you get multiple uh, people lose the losing the popular vote, uh, as, winning we have, the as we have seen... Donald Trump. Uh, right. Then maybe that's going to tee up the issue, but I think it's going to be a hard I mean, sell it definitely to, to get rid of, of the state's influence. It definitely tees up the issue, and it's definitely a... a, a it's definitely a real question in our minds when we think, oh, what are the electoral, what's the goal of the Electoral College? It's to help people who are not in big populated states, specifically in the cities in those big populated right. states. Because the fear is that there's this flyover state issue where, uh, oh, well, to win the presidency, uh, Donald Trump or Barack Obama or whoever else will just fly from New York oh, yeah. to Chicago I mean, to the, L.A. The cluster of tens of millions of people in the northeast around New York, or New York and in Los Angeles, San Francisco and Chicago and Houston, it's basically. Huge be very tempting to ignore the rest of the of the country but and just look, go for those folks. When you look at the math, it doesn't actually work out that way. New York's got about 8 million people. That's huge, massive. It's double the next biggest city, which is LA, at about 4. And then New, uh, Chicago's like 2.5 million. When you t add up the nine biggest cities, the major metro areas, are, are the, there are nine of them that are over a million people each. That is still only two. 0.6% of the U.S. population, mm -hmm. the nine biggest cities in the entire country. If you add up the 90 biggest, nine zero biggest cities in the entire country, add all those major metro areas all to, up together, guess how much you get to? You get to 19% of the vote. Sorry, I, 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 I apologize. Uh, adding up the nine biggest cities gets you to 8%. Get, adding up the 90 biggest cities gets you to the 19, uh, it gets you to 19%. You can't win the presidency with only 19% of the vote, Connor, even if you want every single person in every single big city. You just can't do you've it. You've convinced me. We're going to give more electoral votes to New York and California. It's, I love it. It was a great idea. A, you know what? I take idea. all back all that moralizing <laughs> about how I just want Democrats to win. So I don't actually care about abolishing the electoral college as long as we get the right outcomes for Connor. I knew that truth serum would work. <laughs> uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking about the small penis rule. Hey, it's a defamation law concept, okay? It's real. Yeah, absolutely. This is too many lawyers. We're back on Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. We're talking about the small penis rule. Now, you may say, well, this is really a bad joke, Royal. You, you know, what are you trying to talk about? Well, I'm talking about Michael Crichton. So um, Michael Crichton wrote a book 
called State of Fear. I guess it wasn't quite as popular as Jurassic Park and uh, the Andromeda Strain and they so They can't on. all be winners. No, and in fact, it was not a winner in the view of a reviewer, uh, a reporter named Michael Crowley. I, the reason I looked this up is because I saw Michael Crowley on Fox News recently. He's a New York Times reporter, and he was an interesting guy, smart guy, and I thought, oh, I've, I've never seen him on Fox before, so I, I looked him up on his Wikipedia page, and it says in the Wikipedia page for Michael Crowley that he got into a dispute with the uh, the famous novelist, Michael Crichton. Specifically, Crowley dumped all over uh, Crichton's book, State of Fear. Well, Crichton apparently is was a thin-skinned guy. Yep. He did not like the criticism. So in Michael Crichton's next book, uh, he created a character that sounded, exact, sounded a lot like Michael Crichton. He was called M- Mick Crowley. Mick Crowley. Crowley. Yeah, uh, and so uh, Mick Crowley, instead of Michael Crowley, excuse me. So close. So, yeah, so close. So the the character drawn by uh, the novelist Crichton was a child rapist with a small penis, who was a Yale graduate and a, a journalist. This sounds subtle, suspiciously Very subtle. like the actual guy, Michael Crowley. This name is almost the same and so on. So the question that arose, Connor... May Crowley sue the novelist who is depicting this guy who sounds a whole lot like the critic as being a child rapist with a small penis and so on. So (laughs) the answer is it depends on whether the fictional portrait is so accurate that the reader would easily know, oh, this character drawn by Michael Crichton, I know who that is. That's Michael Crowley, the guy I saw on Fox News. But the problem is the real-life victim of the novel is never going to come forward and say, oh, yeah, I get to sue because everybody knows he's talking about me because I have the things that he says that Right, yeah, that, I mean, it's a self-defeating, it's sort of a self-defending defamation case in a sense. If you bring the case, you have to come forward and, and engage in this big public lawsuit in which you say... Everybody out there knows that this character who's a child rapist and has a tiny penis is me. And by doing that, you just bring more attention to it. It's the Barbara Streisand problem, right? The Streisand problem when she tries to delete a photo off the internet, and then, of course, it goes viral as a result. This always happens when you put things out there in public, in the news. People hear about it more and that's the the problem with these defamation suits is it it, it, talking about them and trying to defend them brings you even more unwanted publicity and of course the 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 more well-known aspect of defamation law is this absence of malice concept that we all know about because of a paul newman and sally field movie many years ago uh, by the same name yes we all know that and it's an interesting (laughs) angle if you you lie uh, about somebody and you say terrible things about them you know they have a dread disease or, or they're, they're dishonest and so on, well, they get to sue you because right. you lied. But if you're a celebrity and somebody lied about the celebrity, the celebrity can't just sue. They have to demonstrate that the guy was malicious, namely he absolutely knew he was lying, intended to inflict harm on yeah, somebody. Yeah, that's something that most people wouldn't know, and it doesn't come that intuitively. Like when you think about it, there's no real reason in our minds why yeah, we love our celebrities yeah. why make life harder why for is them? it harder for a celebrity to sue for defamation that is literally like it, it's in the law it, it doesn't say the word celebrity but it's harder for a celebrity to sue 
Yeah, and so that that's a, that's an interesting twist on the whole defamation issue. Uh, last topic I wanted to get into, uh, Connor, was more of the the San Francisco values issue. We talked earlier about a, a legislator in California named Scott Weiner. Uh, who wants to make it mandatory for everybody to vote. Yeah. You're going to go to prison, Connor, if you don't vote. Yay! If Scott Weiner has his way. At least he wants to impose a fine. Uh, more like Well, he's that. got another idea, Connor. Let me run this up the flagpole. Mm-hmm. He wants to offer financial rewards to methamphetamine users who stay sober. It's Senate Bill uh, 888 that he's uh, introduced. At least it wasn't 666. Uh, What he says is, look, let's have financial incentives to stay in meth recovery. So every time you take your urine test and it comes back negative for meth, you get a gift card. Yeah. So it's it's an idea whose time may have come here. Now, if it gets enacted, I actually have an idea for sort of an alternative approach. Why not give people $100 a month for every month that they're not arrested for a felony? To pay people not to break the law. I what like it. I can tell Great that this, idea. Is, this is appealing to you. Absolutely. Your face is lighting I up. I rarely get arrested gl- for felonies. The glee and delight of the idea so of $100 a month. So I would frequently collect $100 a month. That sounds Shouldn't awesome. Shouldn't we limit that, though, to people who already have two or three felonies on their record? Now because, I have to go out and commit some felonies just so I, I mean, get this $100 Mother a month? Mother Teresa, do we really want to pay her $1,200 a year just because she's not committing mayhem this against is, anybody? This is a cool twist hypothetical on the idea of means-tested welfare versus uh, uh, generically distributed. So uh, the, That's exactly what I was thinking, Connor, in just those words. <laughs> so Andrew Yang comes out and says, everybody should get $1,000 a month, or $1,500 a month, whatever it was for universal basic income that will allow people to provide things for things like rent and food and they won't have to worry about those things they'll be able to choose jobs better they'll be able to get more educated they'll be able to lead more fulfilling lives etc etc to make the world a better place and he might well be right i think he probably is and i think it's a it's a workable plan but the other idea is to take the same amount of money and distribute it among people only people who need it this is something that came up all the time with uh uh with like oh a free college that means millionaire and billionaire children uh, uh children same thing with social security right. why should we pay donald trump social security benefits right, right. and or the, michael bloomberg right and Say somebody says you're right. It would be better if we could uh, means test and say give money only to the people who who need it. But uh, it costs money to hire the guy to decide who de- who needs uh, welfare or who needs force Michael Bloomberg to pay for the people who have to determine whether Michael Bloomberg gets the money. That's the current system. That's taxing the rich to pay for government to distribute means-tested welfare to people. But it might be even cheaper just to hand out money to everybody um, and and not have a bureaucracy uh, that determines who needs the money right now. And that might cut costs in some ways. And, and that's a, it's a really good concept to, to uh, you know, to think about. You, you have to de- deconstruct your assumptions about how welfare has to operate, right? It might be better to give billionaires money even though they don't need it, if it ends up being cheaper overall for everybody. Now, that you know runs into our moral problems, and that's the connection back to the meth issue. We have this concept, we have this moral quandary where we say, wait, it just can't be... It can't be the right thing to pay a, a, a former meth dealer just to do something that we should expect them not to do, which is break the law. We have laws for a reason, and we prefer, we think it's more moral to just tell people this is the right thing to do, and then they do it, as opposed to having to incentivize people with a prize like money to uh, do the right thing. But well, when you, it comes down to it, 
why get hung up on the morality of the different ways, psychological tricks we play on ourselves and our society to try to help people get off drugs? The right outcome, which is fewer people doing methamphetamines and ruining their lives, is what we really have to care about. So I'm all in favor for San, of San Francisco paying meth users not to uh, not to uh, uh, to use meth. I'm also all in favor of you know let's let's go let's go crazy. Like let, let's construct a, a hypothetical that I really will hate. Okay. Let's say I'm going to pay child abusers to stop abusing their children. Somebody who's got a conviction for beating his kids or his wife or if, his dog. If, if Scott Weiner hears this podcast, we're going to see that introduced next week, yeah, I think. If you stop beating your wife or your dog or your kid, g- guy, criminal, mm-hmm. will pay you $100 a month. If that means fewer kids and dogs and, and, and folks get hurt, I'm all for it. Does it sound insane and immoral? Yes. And that's the problem is we have to decide whether we care about the outcomes or do we care about the way that we get to those outcomes. And you've got to have trade-offs. And I think given uh, somebody who's who's been convicted of something bad, like doing meth, $100 a month, is not that bad. Thank, it's not that morally repugnant to me as long God as it results for, in better outcomes. Thank God for Scott Weiner who who sits around th- coming up with these <laughs> ideas, <laughs> well, the, I had forcing us that. to vote or, or imposing fines and now paying meth heads not to take So meth. I have to go have an existential moral crisis about what I just said about paying people who beat up women and dogs and children. So in a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to know uh, whether Bernie or... Uh, or uh, Probably Joe about Biden days. have emerged, perhaps. But here's my idea. I think it's going to come down to Bernie or Joe Biden. Yeah. I think what we have, we put them in two different homes, uh, and each of them is in the separate home. And uh, we have kids on each lawn, and the, the, the geezer who's able to get the kids off their lawn quickest should win the nomination. That's, a really, that's fair. Honestly, that's really fair. I'm going to suggest it to Scott Weiner, and it's going to be introduced in the legislature. Okay, this has been Too Many Lawyers. See you next time. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.